Welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. Two guests today, the environmental journalist Christina Gerhardt, will review the accomplishments, or lack of them, at the COP26 Climate Summit. And former Republican congressional staffer Mike Lofgren will explore what the recently indicted Steve Bannon means by deconstructing the administrative state. Last week I promised some comments on inflation, but I'm going to have to defer the fulfillment of that promise until next week. For the first half of November, delegates from around the world met in Glasgow at the annual UN-sponsored climate conference. In the strange language of diplomacy, this series of meetings is known as the Conference of Parties, abbreviated as COP or COP, and since this was the 26th meeting in the series, it was known as COP26. COP26 was supposed to have been held in April 2020, but COVID made that impossible, so it was postponed for a year and a half. The conference couldn't be described as a resounding success, although there were some things that an optimist could seize on as hopeful. Here to review the goings-on is Christina Gerhardt, an environmental journalist and an academic. She covered COP26 for The Nation and Sierra Magazine. Tina Gerhardt is Barron Professor of Environment at Princeton University. She's also written about film and was on this show in August 2018 to discuss her book Screening the Red Army Faction, a study of that revolutionary German group's history and artistic reception in the context of the German 1960s and 70s. Christina Gerhardt. This was not the most productive of meetings, was it? How does it compare with uh, the previous editions of the, the COP? Thanks so much for the invitation to join you. Yeah, this COP, um, very different than previous COPs. I've been covering these UN climate negotiations that are annual. Um, I've been covering them for about a decade. This is the one where I really walked away saying it was decidedly mixed. And I can talk about this a little bit later, but I also had some takeaways about the usefulness of COPs, um, which some of your listeners and you as well may have had a long time ago. But for me, there's some big questions there. Setting the stage before I get into the takeaway is really important. So COP26 President Alex Sharma said they were going to be the most inclusive ever. And in fact, COP26 has been called the whitest and also the wealthiest UN climate negotiations. And there's a number of reasons um, for that. Vaccine apartheid created challenges for people to be able to attend. One third of Pacific Island nations are not attending. The Pacific Island nations have a big stake in this too, don't they? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. And then I think for for sub-Saharan African nations, the visa issues were a huge role. And then just the cost of attending. I mean, they're always, you know, you have to fly really far and whatever. But like there was price gouging going on by uh, both hotels and Airbnb. And I think rooms were, reservations were canceled. And then if you could get anything, it was like $1,500 a night. And that's just for the nations in the global south that that's just a real big challenge. So I, I mention all of that just to set the stage because this really impacted the demographics of who was outside activists. It also impacted who was inside the delegates and, and the journalists uh, intensely. But yeah, I'm happy to talk about the takeaway a bit more. There's two big areas that I would want to focus on in terms of the takeaway Fossil fuels, which were mentioned for the first time in the text, but watered down on the one hand and then funding on the other hand. So in terms of the fossil fuels, the Glasgow Climate Pact is the first time that fossil fuels are mentioned explicitly in a final declaration that comes out of the UN climate negotiations. They have been previously mentioned in a draft text. I think it was like February 2015. So heading into the Paris Agreements, There was a mention to them, but it didn't end up making it into the final text because Saudi Arabia really pressured intensely to have it removed. And then they were alluded to in the 1997 Kyoto Protocol. And some listeners might be surprised by that. I mean, the whole reason that we have climate change is the climate crisis because of fossil fuels. So why aren't they mentioned? So they were in this uh, text, the Glasgow Climate Pact. And then they were really watered down. So the original text, and they were watered down twice, the original text called for a phase out of coal power and a fossil fuel subsidies. Coal is an interesting case because it's already on the way out. And so pushing it completely Mm -hmm. out Mm -hmm. would not be that gigantic a task. But where's the objection coming from? 
No, that point is absolutely spot on. So there were people who you'll remember the first week, there were big announcements on both methane and on coal. And 23 nations signed on to phase out coal. But two problems there. Firstly, the problem you mentioned, it's already on its way out. So what's the big deal? Why are we celebrating this? And then secondly, of the top five coal producers, which are China, India, the US, Australia, and Indonesia, only Indonesia signed on to that agreement in the first week. But, you know, in terms of to come back to your other question, the watering down, and I would say really like this focus on, on coal, and then the other I mentioned was methane, which is, uh, is a gas emitted by, by nat- uh, emissions emitted through uh, natural gas. I'm happy to talk about that more. Coming out of that first week with those announcements on coal and methane, I and a lot of others were really concerned that the, fo- the focus was shifting away from oil, which is really a main thing that should be focused on. But in terms of the watering down, it was watered down twice So the first thing that changed in terms of this phase out of coal power and fossil fuel subsidies is they added two modifiers. So they now call for the phase down of unabated coal power. That's the first modifiers, unabated. And then they called for the phase out of inefficient fossil fuel subsidies. So inefficient is a second modifier. Basically, in shorthand, what the unabated modifier does is it leaves the door open for carbon capture systems which critics really argue give countries an out. They allow them to keep polluting. They haven't really been, you know, developed to a scale that they're needed yet. So it's basically undoing the call for a phase out. Inefficient fossil fuel subsidies, Jennifer Morgan from, I believe, Greenpeace International, she said all subsidies for fossil fuels are inefficient. Like we shouldn't have them. What does that even mean? And Apparently, inefficient fossil fuel subsidies leaves the door open for, in the argument of the industry, making fossil fuels more financially affordable for poor countries or poor communities in countries in the global north. Now, there was a lot of pushback on that rationale. That was the first watering down. The second was a moment of high drama, which is, I think, language I hardly ever use in talking about the UN climate negotiations, which is that in the very last minutes or hours of the negotiations, because I always drag on, India called for the phase-out language to be watered down and turned into phase-down, instead of phase-out, phase-down. And the president of COP26, Alok Sharma, I think he was, he was just losing his marbles because he thought this was a done deal and how now there was this last-minute request. And so he was rushing around getting mostly with the U.S. and China and the EU, trying to see if they would be on board with this change. And what's really interesting about that request is it came from India, but the exact same language was used by China in the U.S.-China pact that was celebrated last week. So the question, you know, it raises a number of questions for me. Was India kind of the fall guy for a shift that China and maybe even the U.S. support? so that they don't have to undo their coal use. And then more importantly, the U.S.-China pact was really celebrated as getting out of the loggerheads that the climate negotiations often end up in with regard to those two countries. You'll see all the headlines are always, oh, you know, the U.S. and China, and neither one would go first. The U.S. wants China to take more action. China wants the U.S. to take more action. So this was really deemed to be a breakthrough that they would cooperate I'm not resolved on this yet, and I don't want to do a deeper dig into this, but my sense is that actually, if you look at that moment of drama, is it the U.S.-China pact opens the door for not helping the climate negotiations, but maybe undoing any movement that there could have been. Was the ghost or the spirit of Joe Manchin present anyway? Oh, my goodness. Yes, definitely. That The ghost of Joe Manchin was cited, I believe uh, the New York Times did an article on this. The countries that I mentioned in the first week, the 23 nations that signed on to the coal agreement to phase out, I mentioned only Indonesia, the five top producers signed on, U.S. didn't. And most people assumed that Manchin's machinations that were then really still uh, more pitched than they are right now were one of the reasons why the U.S. was afraid to sign on. So yeah, I I definitely think that, that those reverberated all the way to international negotiations. With regard to the the funding, 
for context, it's really helpful for listeners to know. So I'll mention two things that were good news coming out of uh, COP26 with regard to funding. But the fact that funding is so much at the forefront of the global south should be a wake up call for the global north because it really sends a signal of how desperately the nations in the global south already need the money because they have already been impacted. I mean, sure, COVID has hit global South nations even more intensely, but really they need funding because they've already been suffering these impacts. So the two good items of good news are this thing called adaptation, which just to use UN speak for a minute, there's always so many acronyms <laughs> at the UN. It's, it's incredible and just very specific language. So there's, there's uh, this thing called adaptation and um, it's usually spoken about in the same sentence as mitigation. Mitigation are any efforts to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. So you can think of shifting to renewable energy there. Adaptation are efforts, as the word suggests, where you try to adapt to climate change. So that would be removing infrastructure and people from the coastline if you're living in an area that's impacted by sea level rise. Now, these two items, mitigation and adaptation, the the budget for them is supposed to be split 50-50, so equal amounts for each one. And in fact, the mitigation, the shift for renewables, for example, has been getting 75% of the budget and only 25% is going for adaptation. Now, that might sound great because your listeners might think, well, why not shift to renewables? It's awesome. The nations that are most impacted often tend to be nations that produce minimal amounts, negligible amounts of greenhouse gas emissions. So they don't, like their main concern is not to put solar panels up or, or set up, you know, wind turbines. Their main concern is the fact that their homes are flooded X number of days out of the year, and they really need to take action in order to save themselves. I mean, it's, it's their very survival, basically. When that move that I mentioned earlier with India took place, there's a really powerful speech by Tina Stege that your listeners might want to listen to. And she said, I'm only going along with this because the monies that are being allocated in this package are a lifeline for the people of my country. They were promised $200 billion a year, every single year between 2020 and 2025. In 2009, that promise was made. And that money has yet to show up. They finally got an agreement that that money is going to be forthcoming. And the good news is that starting in 2025, they were calling for funds to be doubled because the impacts of climate change have increased. They haven't gotten this money yet. That request, that demand was met. So beginning in 2025, they're going to get double that amount per year. That's still a long time. That's a long time out. Yeah. And then loss and damage would be the other thing. That's also UN speak. Loss and damage refers to any loss or damage that's incurred due to unforeseen impacts of climate change. So you know, say you have a hurricane coming through. I mean, in this era, we might say hurricanes intensifying in number, but also in strength um, is somewhat predictable, but you don't really know what the effects are. So loss and damage allocates funding specifically in order to recover from these kinds of events. That's something that third world uh, nations or the global South or least developed countries, Alliance of Small Island States have been asking for. And they finally got language into the pact that acknowledges loss and damage, at the last minute, their request for the funding, and again, UN speak, which is in the form of a facility, I always think of a building, but apparently a facility is a mechanism through which the funds can be allocated. Yeah, that's like IMF World Bank speak, they use those. Yeah, okay. All right. (laughs) Yeah, you would know that given your background (laughs) and your your expertise. Um, So the facility was turned into a dialogue And the nations from the global South were just furious. They're like, you know, Greta Thunberg's blah, blah, blah came to mind. They were like, we don't need more dialogue. We don't need more endless talking sessions. We we need action. We actually need to see the money. So good news, loss and damage made it into the, the Glasgow Climate Pact. The bad news is that the actual facility, the mechanism to get the funds to them was out. The important thing there is the U.S. is totally opposed to loss and damage. They'll let the wording of loss damage be in. They do not want the funds to actually, like the mechanism for the funds to be allocated to be opened. And the simple reason, I mean, like Todd Stern, I think it was in, um, in 2015, it was in the, uh, then the climate envoy for the US um, in heading into the Paris Agreement, he was saying something along the lines of absolutely not, we're going to, we're not going to do this. Uh, John Kerry, who was then Secretary of State was also in 2015, 
vehemently opposed. And he repeated that, John Kerry, now the climate envoy, repeated that at this uh, COP. And the reason is simple. They worry that this is going to expose them to future liabilities. It's basically, you can call it climate reparations. This is basically, you know, a mandate on 500 years of the global north polluting into the global south. But we're, we're guilty. I mean, we deserve yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, seriously. I mean, Assad Raymond had this great speech at, at the closing. It's so powerful and it's spot on on this particular issue. So really mixed news, really mixed news. I think the temporal thing I was mentioning at the outset in terms of this, these climate negotiations, they run by consensus. So if your listeners have been involved in consensus making decision uh, making processes, they'll know exactly why that would make it more cumbersome and complicated and slow. But, you know, the conferences only meet every year. They take place by consensus decision making. Those two factors make it really slow. This is the decade for action. We have to take action by 2030. The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change says reduce emissions 45% based on 2010 levels by 2030 to hold us to global warming of 1.5 degrees Celsius. So we have to take action now. And uh, what does that mean coming out of COP26? I think, you know, the action has to be wherever we are. It has to be in our communities, um, whether we engage at the federal, the state, the local, the the non-policy level, you know, the action needs to keep happening and it needs to happen now. I'm speaking with the environmental journalist, Christina Gerhardt. These sorts of events are easily mocked. I mean, for example, uh, the 400 private jets that flew in <laughs> were certainly not uh, helping um, reduce emissions of greenhouse gases. There are a lot of charges of hypocrisy, extravagance. I can understand those critiques, but they also are peripheral to the point. But what is the larger point of them? Is it supposed to create public pressure, legal commitments, some form of momentum? Do these things have a point? And if so, what is it? That's a great question. I mean, just to cycle back to the the point in terms of the emissions, and I did see a couple of articles that were like pointing to how much uh, emissions the COP26 actually generated. I think it'd be really helpful to, to you know, keep in mind there that the G20 nations produce 80% of global emissions. And of the G20 nations, only the EU meets those emissions uh, reductions that I just mentioned previously. In fact, they exceed them. The EU is at 55%. The EU, U.S. likes to pretend it's in that league. It has like 52% or something like that, but it uses a different baseline. So it totally fudges the numbers down to like 17%. Uh, before I come back to, to the bigger question that you asked, that would be the one other item of good news coming out of COP26. So Paris Agreement said every five years, nations have to come back with their emissions reductions, and they have to be increased every five years. And realizing the urgency of the issue that I was mentioning previously, at COP26, developing nations, the Global South called for nations to report in every year, and they actually got that demand. So you know, like I just said, the EU is the only of the G20 nations that currently is is meeting the IPCC's call or hewing to the science, if you will. Um, it means all the other nations have to report back with more uh, ambitious uh, reductions next year. And the Glasgow Climate Pact had the IPC science that I just mentioned in it, which is to me really important because it'll allow people to just look up the emissions reductions, the commitments on the emissions reductions, and see who's not who's not holding to them. But that that goes right into your, your question. Like, what is the point? Um, what is this framework? Does it, is it actually binding? The UN negotiations are not legally binding. And I get asked a lot, why cover them? Why the interest in them? I think what's important about the annual UN climate negotiations is that they are an opportunity for delegates from the entire globe to get together. Okay, that's kind of a nice pat statement. What does that mean? It means that this is a moment where members of G20 nations have to look people from the entire rest of the world who outnumber them radically, have to look them in the eyes every single day, hear every single day what the situation on, on the front lines is. Because before people weigh in on, um, on the points of negotiation that are up for discussion at whatever moment, people will often state what's going on in their home country. The representative, the delegate from Kenya was talking about how um, two million people in Kenya are facing starvation, animals are dying, crops are failing. You know, the delegates from Kiribati, Tuvalu, Marshall Islands will talk about the fact that their islands are going under. I mean, I, I, I mean, this was this was a moment that was kind of shocking. Franz Timmermans, the EU commissioner and representative delegate at COP26, he was talking about his, he showed a picture of his grandson 
who's one. And he said, I really worry for my grandson. Like, where's he going to be at in 31 years? And he was sitting somewhat near the Tuvalu delegate. And the Tuvalu delegate was kind of like, um, I'm worried about like my life and that of my son. Like, this is a now time thing for us, right? So that, I think, in terms of COP26 is really powerful. If you add up G77, which is kind of a misnomer, I think it's 133 countries at this point. The Alliance of Small Island States, which is uh, 49 predominantly low-lying atolls um, in the Pacific, also uh, some islands in the Caribbean. You're talking about the majority, you know, my sophisticated math skills tell me that's about 180 uh, countries, and there's 197 members to the United Nations. You're talking about the majority of the globe being affected, being present and telling those stories. And that, to come back to your question, that creates pressure and there is funding that, that flows. So it's not entirely just a, a construct that does nothing. It doesn't do a lot in terms of reducing emissions. It does do a lot of work that's very important for the Global South in distributing funds. And my, um, my friend Roxanne Dunbortis, who worked on the Indigenous Treaty also through the UN, her, uh, she and I have talked about the importance of the UN as much as, as a leftist one may be critical of these kinds of structures the importance of it or the work that it does in gathering people together internationally and allowing for people to share their experiences, but also to push for political action on that global stage. As we're talking about this, uh, we have uh, oil prices over $80 a barrel. Uh, the high price of energy has become a pretty prominent issue in the U.S. now. I just really wonder, can we stand the transition if we start winding down the production of carbon fuels and uh, there's an awful lot of expense to the transition? If we see reduced production of hydrocarbons, we're going to see higher prices for them until we can make that transition. What about the politics of this transition? It just seems, right now, it seems very hard to imagine that we're going to get through it. Am I being too uh, pessimistic? No, 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 not at all. I think I think that question is 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 a really important one to be asking about. I mean, what are we talking about when we say transition and how is that transition going to work out, right? Um, in terms of the, the coal uh, phase out, I'll just say that one nation at the UN was given uh, $8.5 billion in order to phase out coal, and that was South Africa. And that was through this, you know, the, the call for a just transition that I mentioned earlier, which has a mechanism at attached to it, which allocates funds from the global north to the global south specifically to help high coal using uh, nations do that shift because it requires money, right? Well, the question you just asked is all about the, the, tech, the technology transfer. There you're getting into patents, um, setting up the new infrastructure, shifting the jobs, you know, making sure that employment continues. And India signed up uh, soon thereafter. But, you know, like I said, India was kind of a spoil sport at the end. Um, but I, it does raise questions how that transition is is going to happen. One of the things that um, that I think is is interesting with regard to the U.S., where you started your question, is Bloomberg just had an article last week in terms of the cost of developing oil and gas, and it's now four to six times as much as developing renewables. And a decade ago, the costs were equal. So, you know, that's a point about how fossil fuel subsidies, like the divestment movement actually does work. But it's also a point about how renewables have become much more affordable. I think a bigger question in terms of this transition for me, I mean, I, I go in two directions there. I go in the wonky direction of what is this actually going to mean in terms of the nuts and bolts on the ground, meaning what do we need in terms of the grid? How is that going to get paid for? How long is it going to take to roll out? I mean, you know, Biden just yesterday was talking about driving an electric car from one coast to the other being possible and what that would all take. So I get into the nerdy questions there. And Leah Stokes has done really great work on this topic in particular. But then I also get into questions about the energy grid. And this gets into bigger questions of retooling our economies to be more equitable and just. Um, the energy grid is part of that. I get into bigger questions of resource um, access and resource control. So decentralizing the grid or um, community control. Um, and Shalanda Baker uh, has this book out called Revolutionary Power, which is all about um, how communities engage with and control energy access. So that's, you know, those are two different directions I go in in response to that question. 
Okay, finally, this uh, COP was postponed from April of last year, that, that miserable month. What's the next one? Are they going to go back in the uh, the old schedule? Yeah, I mean, this is this COP was deferred from last year due to COVID. The next COP27 is going to be coming up in Egypt, so that'll be the next one. Um, I was asked in an interview yesterday, you know, what, what I kind of thought might come up in that one or whether I thought you know, that one was going to be as important, say, as Glasgow. And I have to say, I have taken note that some of the more major agreements have come out of meetings that have taken place in the global north, not to slight the fact that, that you know, the COP started in, in Rio in 1992. I mean, they started in the global south. But, you know, if you look at in recent years, Copenhagen was a big year, even if that was a debacle at the end. Paris was a big year. Glasgow is another big year. Next year is going to be taking place in Egypt. I think that could be a really interesting COP in terms of its location because it'll make it more accessible to nations, to members coming from uh, different different parts of Africa. And there's a lot of uh, different concerns that nations who are coming from Africa have already expressed this year at Glasgow. So, and they did previously in Paris too. Um, human rights violations are issues to look forward to uh, next year as as topics that come up. But I think these two issues that I mentioned earlier with regard to funding, um, adaptation, loss and damage, the glo- those are going to come up again and again. The people in the global south, this is their lifeline. They're not going to let go of those issues and they're going to keep the pressure on. That was Christina Gerhardt. You can find her coverage of COP26 on the Nation and Sierra Magazine's websites. Tina mentioned some passionate remarks delivered by Assad Rehman of War on Want on the disappointments of the conference. Here's what he said. Asad Raymond, War on Want, speaking on behalf of the Climate Justice constituency. I'm finding it difficult to convey our anger and frustration at this utter betrayal of people. Hollow words about climate emergency from the richest countries and utter disregard about, of the science and equity, false ambition and disdain for justice, a license to pollute with net zero 2050 and carbon markets. You have made decisions, as one party acknowledged, decisions about life and death for millions. Yet 500 years of colonial rule and white supremacy looting the wealth of the global south and you still value your profits over the lives of black, brown and indigenous people. The rich have refused to do their fair share. More empty words on climate finance. You've turned your backs on the poorest who face a crisis of COVID, economic and climate apartheid because of the actions of the richest. It's immoral for the rich to talk about their future children and grandchildren when the children of the global south are dying now. We needed concrete solidarity and cooperation. The rich offered more empty words. You're not keeping 1.5 alive. You're setting us on a pathway to 2.5 degrees. You're setting the planet on fire and claiming to act. Your greenwashing kills, and no amount of spinning will mask that. But we are not without hope. It just will not rest with you, but with us, and we don't compromise on justice. That was Assad Raymond of War on Want at the COP26 conference as proceedings were drawing to a close. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. That was some of For the Love of Money by Defunct, a 1982 cover of an old Gamble and Huff song. Next, Steve Bannon and his expressed goal of deconstructing the administrative state. What does he mean by this? Bannon achieved fame as an advisor to Donald Trump in the early months of his presidency, but like many in the Trump orbit, didn't last very long before the boss turned on him. 
Bannon played a crucial role in Trump's candidacy, among other things, introducing the deeply ignorant developer to the world of conservative politics. Bannon was kicked off Twitter last year for recommending that Dr. Anthony Fauci and FBI Director Christopher Wray should be beheaded and their heads placed on pikes as a warning to federal bureaucrats. He's now under indictment for resisting a subpoena from the House Committee investigating the January 6th riot. Lots of people across the political spectrum don't like bureaucrats, or bureaucracy in general, so Bannon's suggestion, while extreme, might have some resonance beyond the far-right world he inhabits. But that hostility deserves some serious examination. To do some of that work, here's Mike Lofgren, who wrote a piece in the Common Dreams website on the topic the other day. Lofgren spent 28 years working as a Republican congressional staffer, first for John Kasich and then for the House and Senate Budget Committees. He retired in 2011 and published a brutal essay on his former party in Truthout, which he discussed on this show right after it came out. He's written two books since then, The Party is Over and The Deep State, and many articles cataloging the rot of his former party. Mike Lofgren. So, uh, to start with, um, how did it feel to see uh, Steve Bannon surrendering to the authorities? Uh, it's about time. I was beginning to wonder about Merrick Garland and the Justice Department. He seems to have been kind of in the last uh, almost year, sort of the Mr. Magoo of the Justice Department. He really doesn't see that much. What, what do you think was inhibiting him? I don't know. Uh, for one thing, he's not perhaps a prosecutor. The fact that he's a judge, you want somebody who is a prosecutor who knows when he can make a case He's not adjudicating it already when you're coming up with whether to indict somebody. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. I, you with the killer In other words, the, the prosecution or the charging will have already occurred by the time a judge gets to it. And then you simply uh, have to look at the merits of the case in an adversarial process. But a prosecutor should be certainly, in my opinion, more aggressive. And I think the political aspects played into it insofar as they pretend like they're walking on eggshells and they're afraid of their own shadow and whether something will be interpreted as political. We are way beyond that. Well, it's always seemed, though, that uh, administrations have been reluctant to go after their predecessors, <laughs> lest uh, their successors go after them. I mean, is there some fear of uh, tit-for-tat? It might be some of that, but it's also, uh, I think it's the old boy network, and we're way beyond that. This is not the British upper classes, where it's one group that's the ins, and then the other is the outs. And then it changes, but they're all, you know, from Oxford or Cambridge and all have the right families and all that stuff. So there's not a massacre or a purge because basically nothing ever really changes. Uh, We're well beyond that now. Uh, I think the Republicans have indicated they're out for power. They brook no compromise, and when they're in power, they will do whatever is necessary, uh, and the rules be damned. And the idea that you have to play by Marcus of Queensbury rules, or even something beyond that, when you are in power, merely gives them an extra head of steam, and it discredits you before your own supporters. I want to get back to Bannon in a second, but um, this that current attitude among the Republicans that you described, that absolute ruthless desire for power at all costs. <clears throat> That's all, the only principle that really exists. Yeah, with no ethical constraints at all. When did that start among them? You watched them up close for many years. Um, well, I usually think it starts somewhere around the Gingrich era. Is that when it really got going, or does it predate that even? Pretty much. You can always find a predecessor. When you go back in the past, you can always pick out examples. Joe McCarthy was not scrupulous about uh, making sure his enemies were actually guilty before publicly smearing them. But that wasn't characteristic of the whole power structure. 
it was Gingrich. Gingrich was and is a sociopath, and he sort of developed a very elaborate strategy for defaming people and sort of making them guilty as charged and for not having ethical constraints, such as, as I recall, the 1996 uh, telecommunications bill was a huge rewrite uh, because the Internet was just coming along. They hadn't really dealt with cable, with joint ownership of TV stations and print publications in major metropolitan areas and all that sort of thing. Well, they wrote this big elaborate bill, then it disappeared into the Speaker's office and was rewritten to help Rupert Murdoch buy properties in, uh, media properties in New York and not have to worry about uh, antitrust. Well, it just so happens that a Murdoch imprint of one of his publications had offered and given Gingrich the largest advance uh, heretofore in history to write his own auto-hagiography about how great he was. Now, tell me that's not corrupt. (laughs) Well, Bill Clinton played along with that telecommunications bill. The whole thing was a disgrace. Of course he did. It was a horrible disgrace. Okay, back to Bannon. Um, Bannon, of course, is famous for saying he wants to deconstruct the administrative state. And uh, I guess a lot of people don't quite uh, immediately understand what he meant by that, but he's talking about dismantling the bureaucracy. And, you know, a lot of people say bureaucracy who likes... Nobody likes bureaucracy. They think they don't. You know, it's the object of jokes and hand-wringing and all the rest of it. And how much better things would work if we didn't have a bureaucracy that was constrained by rules and reviews and so forth and pedantic nitpicking. But that's what constrains dictatorship. Otherwise, you are at the whim of somebody's great brainwave like Donald Trump, who changes his mind, comes up with incredibly stupid or dangerous ideas, and then is able to implement them. The modern sort of bureaucratic administrative state sort of slowly grew up and achieved some sort of a breakthrough maybe in the 18th century when Parliament became supreme in England And the king was no longer an absolute monarch. And what that entailed was Whitehall and the Home Office and all the rest of it that came up with rules and orders and uh, bureaucratic procedures. But it was the beginning of some kind of freedom. And if you think, well, if we just got rid of this stuff, everything would work better... Do you really want to get rid of, uh, if you fly on airliners, get rid of uh, Federal Aviation Administration safety inspectors? You know, part of the reason that passengers are treated like cattle and uh, customer satisfaction doesn't seem to matter is because airlines were deregulated. And so there is no opposition from the government in terms of antitrust for these mergers that leave passengers from point A to point B captive to a single carrier that then doesn't really care about what passengers think because there is no alternative. Now, if there was no FAA safety inspection... Do you think they would be any more scrupulous about uh, inspecting the planes and making sure they're safe as they are about customer satisfaction? The market would take And the same applies to agricultural uh, inspections and everything else. People 
become apathetic because they take things for granted or they get diverted into things like the culture wars because they don't understand how important they take it for granted that they can drink clean, potable water, that the drugs they take have been tested in clinical trials, that uh, the food isn't tainted. What's Bannon's aim when he talks about dismantling the administrative state? Uh, I think it's to get rid of any constraints on presidential power for uh, whichever clique gets in, which is uh, what he hopes his clique manages to do. Well, who is his his, uh, his crew now? Um, he's, he's alienated from Trump. Well, I mean, the Republican Party, there are no moderate Republicans. It's just like two or three people now, basically, in public life. The rest of them are hardcore and will do anything to get power. I'm speaking with former Republican congressional staffer Mike Lofgren. Well, how seriously should we take the authoritarian impulses of these characters? Are, what, what's their dream? Do they just Completely really... seriously. They've told us what they want to do. What do they want to do? They want absolute, I mean, their whole business of gerrymandering, voter suppression, and calling any election that they don't win a fraud and refusing to accept it, what they're telling us they're going to do is have absolute unconstrained power so that nobody who is in opposition to them can get into office. And then uh, I presume that any kind of surviving bureaucracy would be an obstacle to these dreams? Hannah Arendt said as far as the functionaries in a totalitarian state, their stupidity is the best guarantee of their loyalty. They'll get rid of these people, and they'll put in partisan functionaries to do the job. And that's like putting some Fox News commentator as ambassador to Germany. They did that with Richard Grinnell, and who was in there in his job stirring up right-wing parties in Germany, uh, like the Alternative für Deutschland, which is an extreme right white supremacist faction. You can imagine what sensitivities that stirred up. Now, in your article, uh, you bring in the heavy artillery, the Nazi precedent. Uh, and, of course, Bannon does have some sympathy for European uh, neo-Nazis. Like, uh, so how seriously should we take that uh, the ghost of Adolf Hitler in this crowd? Uh, I think we saw Camp Auschwitz T-shirts among the January 6th insurrectionists. We saw the whole torchlight parade business in uh, Charlottesville, just like in Berlin after Adolf Hitler was made chancellor. So, yeah, we should take it seriously. Well, what is Bannon up to internationally? He's like buddying up to the likes of Orban, right? He's trying to create some kind of fascist, yes, inter- the neo-fascist whole right-wing establishment now is buddying up to Orban. Sean Hannity uh, is a fanboy. Tucker Carlson is a fanboy. Uh, they're holding conferences over there. Uh, I, probably the next CPAC meeting will be in <laughs> Budapest. <laughs> Lovely at that time of year, I'm sure. But that tells you the kind of kind of model that they aspire to: one-party rule. And it's also an interesting sidelight on the patriotism of the right in that there's been a lot of criticism in the last half century and more about the left seeing first Moscow as a utopia and then Maoist China or Cuba or whatever. And to some extent that's true that what kind of an American are you if you take that as a, you know, such a wonderful model to the exclusion of everything else? They are just like that. They see 
Putin or they see uh, Viktor Orban as these great models. In one of the links I put in about Bannon being an admirer of European fascism, he's a complete fanboy of Mussolini. And the gushing he did about, oh, his style and, you know, general wonderfulness uh, is just really embarrassing. And it makes you think, given the fact that so many Americans died to put that down, what kind of patriot are, are these people? Well, these are the people who admire the Confederacy, which is a bunch of traitors. Right. I think that's part of the whole syndrome. You know, the part of the country where many people figure themselves as the archetypal Americans and the most patriotic and all this other stuff, and pro-military, the U.S. military sustained an awful lot of dead putting down that insurrection 160-plus years ago. There are a lot of libertarians. You know, you mentioned Hayek and the Cato Institute who really hate bureaucracy and would like to dismantle it. Um, Is that just some sort of libertarian impulse to dismantle bureaucracy, or or is it really this kind of authoritarian fascist impulse? Or is there any difference? It's hard to know whether people are deluded or they have some sort of hidden ulterior motive. Uh, That I'll leave to uh, psychoanalysts. I just know that it's prevalent and you know you see some of this there there is a small much smaller and less influential libertarian left that kind of fades into anarchism that kind of has the same thing but anarchy has a tendency not to be everybody cooperating uh, in such a marvelous fashion it tends to head towards Somalia where the strongest person, the guy with the most guns, can essentially steal everything, and your life is forfeit if you object. And that's the whole business of inequality in the world. Now, there's just growing and really bad inequality in this country, and part of that is the deregulation of finance and industry to the point where people can accumulate fortunes of over a hundred billion and workers' rights are diminished. Well, that was all part of the deconstruction of the administrative state. It's in the absence of the state that this happens. Unless you have this kind of hybrid system here where it's partly the removal of rules and then the the bigwigs, the plutocrats, have enough influence in the power-making centers to simply buy the government. Uh, the Democrats seem either indifferent or just uh, to this authoritarian turn or issue pro forma complaints, but don't seem very motivated to fight it. What, what, what's going on with them? That is a puzzle for the ages. Whether they are afraid, whether they are simply not conscious of it, whether they're caught up in intramural squabbles about political correctness and all this other stuff, I don't know. I cannot figure it out. And uh, climate change is, of course, a very important thing. But I think to some extent it's become a, on the left and among some establishment Democrats, a kind of surrogate for the most important thing. You're not going to get anything as far as moderation, let alone reversal, of climate change if you neglect the basic political facts that if the other side gets into power because you allow them, the ball game's over. Why, why are the Republicans so hostile? Why do they want to destroy the earth? <laughs> it's, it's mysterious to me. 
Uh, part of it is to own the libs. The other part is this weird misinterpretation of the Bible that God has given us dominion over the earth, apparently not as stewards, but uh, basically to do with as we wish. Oh, and by the way, Armageddon is coming anyway, so it doesn't matter if the earth is warming two degrees Celsius. It'll be a lot hotter soon, and then we'll all be in heaven. Well, except uh, the sinners will be <laughs> experiencing much hotter than two degrees. Well, of course, they'll be cast into the flames, but uh, that's a detail. So, yeah, I mean, that kind of you know, millenarian thinking really does motivate a lot of people in the Republican Party. Well, as I pointed out in the article, it happened when Bush was about to invade Iraq. His greatest uh, support came from dispensationalist evangelicals who thought it would unleash an Armageddon that would lead to the second coming of Christ. And Timothy Snyder, the author of Black Earth, the book about Hitler deconstructing the administrative state in the countries he conquered, Timothy Snyder points out that the Nazi-Soviet pact in August of 39 was greeted with nearly universal fear and dread outside of Germany and Russia, except among certain American dispensationalists. They thought the Hitler-Stalin pact would bring on Armageddon, which in a way it did, a World War II with over 50 million dead, but this would bring the second coming of Christ. That was Mike Lofgren, a former Republican congressional staffer. His article, Steve Bannon and the Deadly Implications of Deconstructing the Administrative State, is on the Common Dreams website. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go out with this, a more inspiring take on Christianity than the tendency Mike Lofgren described at the end of that interview. This is some of Et Resurrexit from Bach's B minor Mass, performed by the Bach Collegium of Stuttgart under Helmut Rilling. Till next week, bye.